Welcome to Poetry Lectures, a series of lectures by poets, scholars, and educators presented by PoetryFoundation.org. In this program, poet Philip Levine reads from his work and offers some wry commentary on a variety of subjects. Following the announcement in August 2011 that he was to become the next U.S. Poet Laureate, Philip Levine said, I was stunned. Born in 1928, Detroit native Levine worked at various industrial jobs. The struggle of everyday working people, especially those in blue-collar industries, remains a primary inspiration in his writing. While working in the auto plants in the 1950s, Levine determined to find a voice for the voiceless. He went on to Wayne State University in Detroit, the University of Iowa writing program, and eventually Stanford. He taught English at Cal State University Fresno for many years until 1992. He has also taught at Columbia, Princeton, UC Berkeley, and New York University. He currently splits his time between Fresno and Brooklyn. Levine uses plain language to craft poetry that is filled with details and moments from day-to-day -day life, especially of the working class, while taking on large themes such as love, death, courage, and social justice. He has received many honors, including the National Book Award, Pulitzer Prize, the Ruth Lilly Poetry Prize, and two Guggenheim Fellowships. The talk you're about to hear was recorded in April 2009 at the Art Institute of Chicago. In light of Levine's comments on the contemporary political landscape, it's worth remembering that this was just three months after Barack Obama took office as president. Here's Philip Levine. Uh, I'm, I'd like to read some new, very recent work and some older work. Um, let me start out with, I am identified as the, you know, the poet of the laboring classes. Uh, I actually haven't worked in years. <laughs> and even when I did, I did my best not to work. Uh, so, it, it, I mean, I don't really believe in work. I actually, I, as a teacher, I worked quite hard assaulting my students. This is called What Work Is. Uh, it's from this book, which is also called What Work Is. My work is not autobiographical. My life has been extraordinarily dull. And, and the idea of trying to immortalize it is ridiculous. So, but occasionally, something from my actual life will sneak into a poem. And it's usually a lie. <laughs> what work is? We stand in the rain in a long line, waiting at Ford Highland Park for work. You know what work is. If you're old enough to read this, you know what work is, although you may not do it. Forget you. This is about waiting. Shifting from one foot to another, feeling the light rain falling like mist into your hair, blurring your vision until you think you see your own brother ahead of you, maybe ten places. You rub your glasses with your fingers, and of course, it's someone else's brother, narrower across the shoulders than yours, but with the same sad slouch, the grin that does not hide the stubbornness the sad refusal to give in to rain, 
to the hours wasted waiting, to the knowledge that somewhere ahead a man is waiting who will say, no, we're not hiring today for any reason he wants. You love your brother. Now suddenly you can hardly stand the love flooding you for your brother, who's not beside you or behind or ahead, because he's home trying to sleep off a miserable night shift at Cadillac so he can get up before noon to study his German. Works eight hours a night so he can sing Wagner, the opera you hate most the worst music ever invented. <laughs> How long has it been since you told him you loved him? Held his wide shoulders, opened your eyes wide, and said those words, and maybe kissed his cheek. You've never done something so simple, so obvious. Not because you're too young or too dumb. Not because you're jealous or even mean or incapable of crying in the presence of another man. No, just because you don't know what work is. Uh, this is a book I always love reading from. It's been good to me. And, you know, poets are obsessed with other poets. And this is a, poet, a poem about two poets, Garcia Lorca and Hart Crane. Uh, two extraordinary poets, both of whom never lived to fulfill their promise. Um, they, met, they met at least once. Only one meeting is truly documented. Garcia Lorca had come from Spain, uh, to learn English, ostensibly. He was at Columbia University. Crane was living in Brooklyn. Uh, this was 1929. Crane would die in three more years. He would uh, leap from his ship and commit suicide. And Garcia Lorca would be executed by the uh, phalangists the fascist movement of Spain in 1936. But for one night at least, we know they were together. Crane, by the way, was an alcoholic, uh, and uh, there's a reference to his drinking in the poem. On the meeting of Garcia Lorca and Hart Crane, Brooklyn, 1929. Of course, Crane's been drinking and has no idea who this curious Andalusian is, unable even to speak the language of poetry. The young man who brought them together knows both Spanish and English, but he has a headache from jumping back and forth from one language to another. For a moment's relief, he goes to the window to look down on the East River darkening below as the early night comes on. Something flashes across his sight. A double vision of such horror, he has to slap both his hands across his mouth to keep from screaming. Let's not be frivolous. Let's not pretend the two poets gave each other wisdom or love or even a good time. 
Let's not invent a dialogue of such eloquence that even the ants in your own house won't forget it. The two greatest poetic geniuses alive meet. And what happens? A vision comes to an ordinary man staring at a filthy river. Have you ever had a vision? Have you ever shaken your head to pieces and jerked back at the image of your young son falling through open space? Not from the stern of a ship bound from Veracruz to New York, but from the roof of the building he works on. Have you risen from bed to pace until dawn to beg a merciless God to take these pictures away? Oh, yes. Let's bless the imagination. It gives us the myths we live by. Let's bless the visionary power of the human, the only animal that's got it. Bless the exact image of your father dead and mine dead. Bless the images that stalk the corners of our sight and will not let go. The young man was my cousin, Arthur Lieberman, then a language student at Columbia, who told me all this before he died quietly in his sleep in 1983 in a hotel in Perugia. Good man, Arthur. He survived graduate school. Later came home to Detroit and sold pianos right through the Depression. He loaned my brother a used one to compose his hideous songs on, which Arthur thought were genius. What an imagination Arthur had. I live now half the year in Fresno, California and half the year in Brooklyn, New York. So I'd like to read a poem from each of those landscapes, cityscapes. I feel equally at home in both, but I can afford Fresno. <clears throat> this was published in Poetry Magazine, which, which comes, of course, out of Chicago, the oldest poetry magazine in America, founded in 1912 by Harriet Monroe, who once owned this art museum. That's not true. <laughs> I don't know what the hell she owned. I would imagine by, by the time she grew old, she was penniless, uh, trying to promote a poetry magazine. <laughs> but maybe not. Uh, it's called Our Valley, and I live in, the, Fresno is in the Great Central Valley, sometimes called the San Joaquin Valley. You have the Sierra Nevadas on the east, and you have the coastal range on the west, and you have between the two this, this agricultural region. It's the place that uh, the so-called Okies went to in, uh, in Steinbeck's novel the grapes of wrath, uh, our valley. We don't see the ocean, not ever. But in July and August, when the worst heat seems to rise from the hard clay of this valley, you could be walking through a fig orchard 
when suddenly the wind cools and for a moment you get a whiff of salt. And in that moment, you can almost believe something is waiting beyond the Pacheco Pass, something massive, irrational, and so powerful, even the mountains that rise east of here have no word for it. You probably think I'm nuts saying the mountains have no word for ocean. But if you live here, you begin to believe they know everything. They maintain that huge silence we think of as divine, a silence that grows in autumn when snow falls slowly between the pines and the wind dies to less than a whisper, and you can hardly catch your breath because you're thrilled and terrified. You have to remember, this isn't your land. It belongs to no one, like the sea you once lived beside and thought was yours. Remember the small boats that bobbed out as the waves rode in and the men who carved a living from it only to find themselves carved down to nothing? Now you say this is home. So go ahead, worship the mountains as they dissolve in dust. Wait on the wind, catch a scent of salt, call it our life. It seems, you know, it's, even at my age, it seems like the United States has always been at war. And you know, when we weren't at war, then we invented wars like the war on drugs or the war on poverty, which we had no intention of fighting. <laughs> I mean, those are, those are two great industries, poverty and drugs. So, I, you know, when I grew up, I thought I was going to have to go to World War II, but I didn't. It ended. So um, th this is a poem about that war. A scene from a a kid's point of view. It's called During the War. When my brother came home from war, he carried his left arm in a black sling, but assured us most of it was still there. Spring was late, the trees forgot to leaf out. I stood in a long line waiting for bread. The woman behind me said it was shameless. Someone as strong as I, still home, still intact, while her Michael was burning to death. Yes, she could feel the fire, could smell his pain all the way from Tarawa, or was it Midway? And he's so young, younger than I, who was only 14, taller, more handsome in his white uniform, turning slowly gray the way unprimed wood grays slowly in the grate when the flames sputter and die. I think I'm going mad, she said, when I turned to face her. She placed both hands on my shoulders, kissed each eyelid, hugged me to her breast, and whispered wetly in my bad ear words I'd never heard before. When I got home, my brother ate the bread carefully, one slice at a time, until nothing was left but a blank plate. 
Did you see her? He asked. The woman in hell, Michael's wife. That afternoon, I walked the crowded streets looking for something I couldn't name. Something familiar. A face or a voice or less. But not these shards of ash that fell from heaven. Oh, yeah, now I got to read if I, if I brought a Brooklyn poem. I hope I brought a Brooklyn poem. Here I said I would read Brooklyn. Oh, geez. Yeah, Brooklyn will survive without me. Well, some other day. <laughs> oh, no, here it is. Here it is. Uh, I live a couple of blocks from something called the Promenade in Brooklyn. It's in Brooklyn Heights. It's, it's a walkway with flowers growing and things, and a fantastic view of Manhattan. And then the Statue of Liberty, uh, out where the East River flows into the Atlantic. And it's, it's usually, when the weather's nice, it's mobbed with people enjoying it, somewhat like that park you have over here with the sculpture, the big fat one that gives you your impression. It's the first time I've looked in something that resembled a mirror and looked worse than I actually look. Uh, yeah. And that takes a lot of doing. It's called Two Voices. I heard a voice behind me in the street calling my name. This was not years ago. This was yesterday in Brooklyn, late spring of the new year. The flowers, roses, tulips, mock oranges, pansies, shouting their colors along the promenade. I was on my way to nothing, just ambling along, my head altogether empty on a Saturday morning in my 73rd year. Not altogether empty, for the flowers were in it and the crowds of kids in bright shirts and sweaters, young kids with their parents in tow, and across the river, there was the city breaking through the haze to call to the heights, to belittle Brooklyn, as it always does. Then my name, Philip, a huge voice, deep and resonant, unfamiliar, or if heard before, heard on radio or television, too sonorous for daily life. So, of course, I turned to behold more kids on rollerblades, Kids on skateboards, kids on foot, no one especially aware of me. Waiting, awake now as I hadn't been, certain the morning meant more than I'd come looking for. The crowds passed, the sun grew stronger, the day passed into afternoon and I gave up at last and turned for home, half believing I'd missed something. Let's say, I phone you tonight and tell you my little adventure, which came to nothing. What will you think? Not what will you say. You'll say it was an illusion, or you'll say there was a deep need in me to hear that particular voice. Or sometimes the voices of the air, all the separate voices in so public a place, can unite for a moment to produce 
Philip or John or Robert or whatever we expect. I don't know what you'll think. I've never known. Even when you and I were together and I'd waken in the false dawn to hear you in the secret voice that was yours, crying out into the dark a name, not mine. Ah, let me, let me go home to Detroit. Detroit is, in a way, I, it still feels like home. I mean, I left when I was 26. And I have a brother there, so I go back there, too. I wish I had a brother in Paris. <laughs> God almighty. They have such bad taste. I mean, one was here and he left for Santa Barbara, which is a community, oh, how to describe it? Let's say you wanted to buy a button or a screwdriver or a fuse for your fuse box. You'd have to go to Los Angeles. Yeah. <laughs> You know, but if you wanted to eat food imported from Bengal or something like that, oh, they got everything, you know. <laughs> you want moose meat? We have it, you know. This is called Of Love and Other Disasters. I, ha I have a friend who, who once said to me, I want to call my new book Lectures on Love. What do you think? And I'd read some of the poems. And I said, no, 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 that's a terrible title. People don't want to be lectured, first thing, you know. And second thing, what the hell do you know about love? <laughs> uh, I said, why don't you call it Of Love and Other Disasters? And he said, I'll ask my wife. <laughs> well, that told, that told me everything I needed to know. <laughs> So I took the title and used it for, <laughs> because I could say that to my wife and she'd say, yeah, well, so what else is new, you know? <laughs> yeah. All right, this is Detroit. Of love and other disasters. The punch press operator from up north met the assembler from West Virginia in a bar near the stadium. Friday, late, but too early to go home alone. Neither had anything in mind, so they conversed about the upcoming baseball season, about which neither cared. We could be a couple, he thought. But she was all wrong, way too skinny. For years, he'd had an image of the way a woman should look. And it wasn't her. It wasn't anyone he'd ever known, certainly not his ex-wife, who'd moved back north to live with her high school sweetheart about killed him. I don't need that shit, he almost said aloud. And then realized she'd been talking to someone, maybe to him, about how she couldn't get her hands right, how the grease ate so deeply into her skin it became a part of her. And she put her hand palm up on the bar and pointed with her cigarette at the deep lines the work had carved. The lifeline, he said, which one is that? 
None, she said. And he noticed that her eyes were hazel, flecked with tiny spots of gold, and then embarrassed, looked back at her hand, which seemed tiny and delicate, the fingers yellowed with calluses, but slender and fine. She took a paper napkin off the bar, spit on it, and told him to hold still while she carefully lifted his glasses, leaving him half blind, and wiped something off just above his left cheekbone. There, she said, handing him back his glasses. I got it. And even with his glasses on, what she showed him was nothing he could see, maybe only make-believe. He thought, better get out of here before it's too late, but suspected too late was what he wanted. Uh, let me read another Detroit poem. I got a new book coming out in October. I know you're impatient to get it. Uh, it's called News of the World. This, these poems will be in it. Uh, an Extraordinary Morning. Two young men, you just might call them boys, waiting for the Woodward streetcar to get them downtown. Yes, they're tired. They're also dirty and happy. Happy because they've finished a short work week, and if they're not rich, they're as close to rich as they'll ever be in this town. Are they truly brothers? You could ask the husky one, the one in the black jacket he fills to bursting. He seems friendly enough, snapping his fingers while he shakes his ass and sings Sweet Lorraine. Or if you're put off by his mocking tone, ask the one leaning against the locked door of Ruby's rib shack, the one whose eyelids flutter in time with nothing. Tell him it's crucial to know if in truth this is brotherly love. He won't get angry. He's too tired for anger, too relieved to be here. He won't even laugh, though he'll find you silly. It's Thursday, maybe a holy day somewhere else, maybe the Sabbath. But these two, neither devout nor cynical, have no idea how to worship except by doing what they're doing singing a song about a woman they love merely for her name, breathing in and out the used and stained air they wouldn't know how to live without. And by filling the twin bodies, they've disguised as filth. I believe they have this beautiful book, I'm talking about the cover, uh, for sale. That's Don Cherry, the trumpeter, standing in Grand Central Station in the subway stop. He's probably 
I was told he's 19 here. He's holding his trumpet. He's extraordinarily beautiful. I had the good luck to go to college at a time when the American political spectrum was enormous. I mean, on the right, you had the jerks who would go on to form the John Birch Society. Uh, they were very enthusiastic about things like racial profiling uh, and increased poverty. On the left, you had anarchists, communists, Trotskyites. You had everything. You even, there was even a small group of Democrats uh, <laughs> with allegiance to that floundering party. Let's see. Harry Truman was the president. They weren't bad days, you know. And I was in classes with all of them, uh, the whole range, and it was kind of marvelous to hear, you know, I mean, it was just great. Communism, the Communist Party was not outlawed. They were on the ballot. They had some jerk named Earl Browder who got hundreds of thousands of votes. You, you doubt me. Look how many votes a bigger idiot named George W. Bush got. <laughs> so you, you should not doubt me for a moment. I'm glad to see that nobody's gotten up to walk out. I, I gave a talk some years ago. That's the last time I was in Chicago. That's right. They have a thing in November. It's an arts thing, you know? What's it called? Yeah, and I gave a talk, uh, Bush was the president, and I ended about, you know, talking about why there had not been a, uh, a poetry reading in the White House. <laughs> there had been a projected one. I got an invitation. Yes, that shows how, how little they knew. <laughs> I mean... You know, if they'd given me silverware, I could have killed a bastard, you know. <laughs> uh, but of course, all the poets said no. Uh, we, we wouldn't read for them. And my point, uh, one of the points in the lecture was that you earn poetry. You earn it. You earn it by, by, by celebrating language and the way you speak it and listen to it and, and, and censor it when it's lies. Uh, and, and they had so abused language that they didn't, they didn't deserve poetry. So we wouldn't give it to them. And it's amazing that we were united in this. Yeah. Yes. And I got paid very well. I, I, I do remember that. I, I, we ate and drank a lot. <laughs> but at some, when I started talking about the Bushies, people got up and walked out. Not... Not half of them. You know, maybe ten, but it, it hurt. <laughs> like hell. Uh, 
Okay, this is called Our Reds. By Reds, I mean communists. And I mean professional communists, not, you know, amateur communists. You know, like, like Jesus Christ in his circle. Uh, okay. I call one Vallejo. Vallejo, after the great uh, Peruvian poet, Cesar Vallejo, who himself was a communist. Uh, but I call him that because of the way he spoke, the way he used language, this particular guy. I call the, one, the woman Lapino. I name her after Ida Lapino, who was, I don't know if you watch ancient movies, but she was sort of the original Ur diner waitress, you know, skinny, wiry face, beautiful in spite of her ugliness. Uh, she, was, she was fabulous. She was a, a hell of a woman, too. She was also a film director at a time when women were not welcome in that capacity. And then I call another one two, two Card Cohen because he was so proud of having two party cards. He was constantly showing them to us, you know. Oh, they were, but it was great to be in their class and to hear this idiocy. Uh, our Reds. Let us bless the three wild Reds of our school days. Bless how easily Gaunt Vallejo would lose control, the blood rushing to his depleted face while his mistress in a torn trench coat stroked his padded shoulders to calm him. We'll call him Vallejo after the poet only because he vaulted into speech in such a headlong rush. In truth, his name was Slovakian. We'll call her Lupino after the film star because she was more beautiful in memory than in fact, her cheeks drawn over fine bones her hair tumbling down from under the beret, hair we loved and called dirty blonde. Vallejo would rise in class unasked to interrupt, quote, the tired fascist swill the stunned professor was giving out. Quote, the proper function of a teacher is to inform the unformed cadres of the exploited classes regarding the nature of their enslavement to an estate sold to the masters of the means of production. Lupino <laughs> would rise quietly beside him to show solidarity and to begin her therapy. Two-card Cohen would join in flashing his party cards for all to see and invoking the sacred triads of Hegel. And we the unformed and uninformed dropped our pencils and groaned with gladness to be quit of Aristotle's ethics or the monetary theories of James K. Polk and stared into a future of rotund potential fulfilled. They're gone now, the three. Vallejo, Lupino, Cohen, into an America no one wanted, or into something even worse. So bless their certainties, their fiery voices we so easily resisted, 
their tired eyes, their cheeks flushed with sudden blood. Bless their rhetoric. Bless their zeal. Bless their costumes and their cards. Bless their faith in us, especially that faith, that hideous innocence. Oh, let me, I always try to read the most recent poem I've written. And, and there is a kind of uh, decorum that goes with that. I read it, and then later, if you see me, you say, you know, that new poem is probably the greatest poem you've ever read. <laughs> it's called, I know it's called Deceit, uh, but, it, but it, 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 it's part of the ritual. I was once introduced by a poet who fell asleep during my reading. I don't know that it was me, uh, because I was also reading with Galway Cannell, and I don't think it was Cannell either. I think it was the fact that he was drunk. Uh, and then when, he, when, when I ended, there was some applause. I was the last one to read. And um, he rushed up and said, the new poems are fantastic. And I had read some, but I lied. I said, I didn't read any new poem. <laughs> you know, I wanted to get even with the bastard. Uh, this is called 1934. And it goes this way. 1934. You might hear that after dark in towns like Detroit, packs of wild dogs took over the streets. I was there. It never happened. In the old country before the Great War, my people were merchants and butchers. And then the killings drove the family first to England, then Canada, then here, Detroit. My father's brother had a shoe repair shop for a time on Brush Street. He'd learned the trade from his father back in Kiev. My mother's family was in junk. The men were huge, thick-chested, with long arms and great scarred hands. My uncle Leo could embrace a barrel of scrap metal, laugh out his huge laugh, and lift it up just for the joy. His wife, Rebecca, let her hair grow out in great wiry tangles and carried her little fists like hammers. Late summer Sundays, we'd drive out to the country and pick armloads of sweet corn, boil them in sugar, and eat and eat until we couldn't. Can you believe those people would let dogs take what was theirs, would cross an ocean and a continent to let anyone or anything dictate? After dark, these same men would drink out on the front steps. The neighbors claimed they howled at the moon. Another lie. Sometimes they told stories of life back in Russia. Stories I half believed of magic escapes and revenge killings of the gorgeous Ukrainian girls they had. One night they tore up the lawn wrestling until Leo triumphed. 
Leo in his vested suit, gray and sweat-stained. My uncle Joseph was different, tall and slender. He'd come into the family through marriage here in Michigan. A pensive, gentle man. When stray dogs came to the back door of the shoe shop, he'd let them in, even feed them. Their owners, he told me, barely had enough to feed themselves. Uncle Joseph would take a battered pair of work shoes and cut the soles off with a hooked cobbler's knife and then drawing one nail at a time from his mouth, pound down a new sole. He'd pry off the heel and do the same. I was just a kid, seven at most, and never tired of watching how at the polishing wheel the leather took on its color and began to glow. Once he made a knife for me, complete with a little scabbard that looped around my belt. The black handle, too, was leather, taken from a boot no one reclaimed. He pounded and shaped it until it felt like stone. Whenever you're scared, he told me, just rub the handle three times and nothing bad can happen. Well, let me close with, uh, with a poem. What the hell else? Uh, I wish I could find a happy poem. <laughs> I mean, uh, here's a poem I like. Garcia Lorca appears again, only, he's only referred to. Early in the century, uh, the great Spanish poet Juan Ramon Jimenez came to, uh, came to the United States and he wrote a poem about a man he saw on the streets. And some years later, when Garcia Lorca was in New York, he thought he saw the same man. It wasn't that, it wasn't that late. It was uh, about 16 years later. He obviously didn't. Or maybe he did. But it, I didn't see him. But I did see a man who reminded me so powerfully of that man. When I took a walk, I used to live, I used to live in Manhattan till until they took my visa away, and I had to move to Brooklyn. Um, um, and I used to walk. When I, I, when I lived there, the only entertainment I could afford was walking, so <laughs> I did a lot of it. And uh, downtown, I, I used to walk downtown, and I used to see wonderful things. It's called The Poem of Chalk. On the way to Lower Broadway this morning, I faced a tall man speaking to a piece of chalk held in his right hand. The left was open and it kept the beat, for his speech had a rhythm, was a chant or dance, perhaps even a poem in French, for he was from Senegal and spoke French so slowly and precisely that I could understand as though hurled back 50 years to my high school classroom. A slender man, 
elegant in his manner, neatly dressed in the remnants of two blue suits, his tie fixed squarely, his white shirt spotless, though unironed. He knew the whole history of chalk, not only of this particular piece, but also the chalk with which I wrote my name the day they welcomed me back to school after the death of my father. He knew feldspar, he knew calcium, oyster shells. He knew what creatures had given their spines to become the dust time pressed into these perfect cones. He knew the sadness of classrooms in December when the light fails early and the words on the blackboard abandon their grammar and sense and then even their shapes so that each letter points in every direction at once and means nothing at all. At first I thought his short beard was frosted with chalk. As we stood face to face, no more than a foot apart, I saw the hairs were white. For though youthful in his gestures, he was like me, an aging man. Though far nobler in appearance, with his high carved cheekbones, his broad shoulders, and clear dark eyes. He had the bearing of a king of Lower Broadway, someone out of the mind of Shakespeare or Garcia Lorca, someone for whom loss had sweetened into charity. We stood for that one long minute, the two of us sharing the final poem of chalk while the great city raged around us. And then the poem ended as all poems do, and his left hand dropped to his side abruptly and he handed me the piece of chalk. I bowed, knowing how large a gift this was, and wrote my thanks on the air, where it might be heard forever, below the seashell's stiffening cry. Thank you. That was Philip Levine speaking at the Art Institute of Chicago on April 30, 2009. The talk was part of Art Beyond Borders, a collaboration of the Art Institute and the Poetry Foundation. Philip Levine has written more than two dozen books of poetry, most recently News of the World, published in 2009. What Work Is was published in 1991 and won the National Book Award. His next book, The Simple Truth, won the Pulitzer Prize for Poetry. In 1994, Levine published a collection of essays called The Bread of Time Toward an Autobiography, in which he discusses his life and family and the poets and writers who inspired and taught him. You can read more about Philip Levine and a selection of his poems at poetryfoundation.org. Also at the Poetry Foundation website, you'll find articles by and about poets, an online archive of more than 10,000 poems, the Poetry Learning Lab, the Harriet blog about poetry, the complete back issues of Poetry Magazine, and other audio programs to download. I'm Ed Herman. Thanks for listening to Poetry Lectures from poetryfoundation.org.